my daughter is very involved in sports and she's super competitive and I'm, she's a soccer player and I'm out there at the field. I'm like, give the other guys a turn. Let them have the ball. Come on, you guys play nice. It's like, let the girls be out in the fresh air and run around. And my daughter's like, let the girls be out in the fresh air and beat the shit out of each other. There you go. Oh, that's America. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Tom Keegan is one of the most sought-after performance directors out there for games, animation, TV, film, and theater. As a former actor, performance artist, and postmodern choreographer, Tom's skills from off-Broadway and theaters around the globe have translated incredibly well into video games, including a BAFTA nomination for his work on Wolfenstein. A native New Yorker, Tom moved out to L.A. and became the talent director for creative affairs at Vivendi Universal Games, casting and directing really cool projects, including Chronicles of Riddick with Vin Diesel, The Incredible Hulk, Ultimate Destruction, and Men of Valor with Sean Astin, and pop IP titles like American Idol, Jumpstart, and of course, the ever-popular Barbie. Tom's also worked on a few other things you might have heard of, like Battlefield, Call of Duty... Need for Speed, Dead Rising, and The Darkness. When he isn't playing in the video game space, Tom writes, directs, produces, and makes award-winning films. He is a favorite at conferences, leading discussions on how to create performances that add value and distinction to video games. I think we could all benefit from that. So, let's talk voiceover, Tom Keegan. Let's talk. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being our guest. Oh, my pleasure. Everybody talks about you. Everybody I talk to <laughs> talks about Tom Keegan. Everybody has, oh, I went to this conference and Tom Keegan was there and he was just great. He was phenomenal. So how did all this come about? Obviously, the whole theater thing makes sense. But then the transition into the video game world. Well, my theater background is um, a bit of the off, 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 off Broadway, basically kind of the performance theater scene, downtown New York, 1980s. I played the Bronx. That was off the, <laughs> it was off Broadway. I, I, was bo- I was born in the Bronx, you know? I, I was born in the Bronx. I, I still have cousins in the Bronx. They go, Tommy, Tommy, when are you coming back? <laughs> Never. Not as long as you're alive. <laughs> I got you both beat. I played in Yonkers. You played Yonkers. Yonkers, yeah, Yonkers. Yonkers. I wouldn't admit to that. I would not make that a public statement. Right you now. are Yonkers. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even remember where we were. Okay. No, yeah. I remember. I remember. Um, when I moved out to L.A., um, I started doing some commercial, on-camera commercials and stuff like that. And performance art stuff and you know you can only do the performance art thing i think for so long and you either have to get like super famous or have to have a trust fund and um it was time to move on so i had a friend at a little animation company Uh, i mean little animation company i was the it guy (laughs) slash receptionist (laughs) slash head of development And they were doing some cell animation, and it was really interesting. And then they ran out of money. But on the last day that they ran out of money, one of the guys had a girlfriend who was working at Hanna-Barbera, 
right at the start of uh, Cartoon Network. Oh, nice. And her assistant had quit. And he said, hey, do you want the job? This was in TV development. And I was like, hell yeah. You know, it's always about timing, isn't it? Yeah. And I went over there and um, her name is Ellen Cockrell. She's still around. She produces the um, Curious George series. Um, She's now at Universal. But it was the best. Oh, my God. We were in the uh, Jetsons building that Hanna-Barbera used to have on Coenga. Uh, Mr. Hanna and Mr. Barbera still came into work on some days. Nice. There were all these original cells on the walls. And um, I was taking pitches for TV development for Cartoon Network series. And um, we were working on stuff like Cow and Chicken and the Powerpuff Girls, Johnny Bravo. Wow. And um, it was so fun. And then one day they just kind of came in and said, hey, guess what? Uh, We sold the company to Time Warner. You're all fired. So um, I went over to Universal for a while and it was super corporate. And um, literally one day the Hollywood Reporter fell open on my desk and there was this kind of ad that said, um, have you been involved in theater? Have you done children's theater? Do you know voice acting? And I applied for it, and it was for kids' educational CD-ROMs. And um, I asked my friend, should I, should I do this? My, my boss was like, don't leave the lot. Oh, my God, you'll never get back on TV. <laughs> and um, my friend said, yeah, I think the CD-ROM thing is going to turn out to be good. And um, just kind of from there, one thing led to another, and like, here I am. But the biggest influence in all those years was when I was working at the company, there was money for training. Like you could find training. And I was like, who teaches directing? And I went online and I found this teacher, Judith Weston. And if you don't know her, you should read her books. She, she's only now doing kind of private consulting for like big, big movies. But I worked with her for like 15 years and it was incredible it's like acting and directing and her book is called directing actors and you have to act. If you take her workshops as a director, you have to act. And, um, it really kind of helped me put together everything I'd done over the years. So I do feel I have a technique and, um, I do a lot of homework. So I break down the scripts. I break down every scene. I break down each character. I break down every line even. And I come in, try to come into the session with choices what I call a basket of choices for everything. And then I just play, you know, and then I have all these tools. It's like I have all the ingredients and I turn the soil. And then when I'm with the actor, then we just play. How fun. So how do you share that breakdown? Because normally as a voice actor, those are the kinds of things that you're expected to walk into the studio with. Of course. Right? Yeah. You're supposed to have done your homework. You're supposed to understand the character. You're supposed to have it all laid out. And you're lucky if you've gotten the material, though. Before you walk in. Well, then that's true. You know what? That's that's very true in voice acting. I mean, it would be a pleasure to work with somebody that was able to provide that kind of information walking into a session because you're right. Normally, that's what you end up with is they hand you a script and say, "Okay, go. Yeah. Well, what I do is I always try to get the actor the script at least the day before so they can have looked at it and something's cooking in their head. And um, I don't always have control over that. And I myself would never take the job if I couldn't get the script in advance. Some people do. Some directors can. I can't do that. just doesn't work for me. But what I do then is I'll go in and I'll just talk to the actor kind of privately away from the the suits or whoever's in the room or who's ever on Skype or whatever. And I go in and say, hey, have you had a chance to look at this? 
what are your thoughts about it? Have you played this role before? And then I just try to narrow down one or two things. I say, let me tell you a little bit about the context, a little bit about the story, what this is. And here's what I think just happened before. Here's the things that I think that are important from the past that you need to know about this and what your objective might be. And let's kind of try to focus on this, if that works for you. Hey, Tom, I got a question for you. Yeah. If you can't get a finished script, do you absolutely want to wait until you have a finished script to look it over? Or no, show it to me when it's in draft form so I can start absorbing it then? I'm not sure what your answer is, but I am curious. I prefer some information, incomplete information versus no information. Yeah. Even if it isn't the final, I just see what the ideas are that, that's at the core of it. Because on the day of, the actual words that we're doing will run with that, right? But the what's underneath, the part that's underneath, which is, you know, the character in the situation, that's probably not going to change, right? Right, sure. Unlikely anyway. It has happened, but not, not too often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One time I did this really big game, and um, we had the first shoot, and this was a performance capture game, major, major, huge title. And we did the first shoot up in Vancouver, and two actors had been cast. And we have a meeting the day before just to go over everything. And they're like, yeah, we fired the writer, and we've rewritten the whole thing. <laughs> and <laughs> hey, that's no problem. What could yeah, go yeah, wrong? Yeah. We're good. We're good. I'm yeah. like, okay. And <laughs> the main actor, the main character was a, a Southern writer, and that was all gone. And so the the poor actor who I was like, I was like, just be yourself, man. You know, just be yourself. Drop the Southern thing. He's like, really? I'm like, yep, yep. And um, let's run with it. Wow. And then, of course, they ended up throwing all that out. <laughs> and the thing that got written later was kind of based on this actor. And then, of course, as always happens, then they were like, you know, maybe we should get somebody else. And I was like, I fought uh, for that actor. I yeah. fought for that actor. Uh, and he did get the job and was brilliant. So, good. But good. it still was like, oh, really, are you kidding me? You know. But, hey, isn't it always like that? Even for us, no matter how successful you are, I think it's that way in movies, too. You still have to audition for the job. Oh, yeah. Every job. Every You're time. Every again. time, sure. So what brought you out to L.A. to begin with? Uh, well, my, um, husband, now husband, then partner, always wanted to live on the West Coast. And I was like iffy about it because I'm from New York originally, right? And, um, I was going to say that's not always the easiest transition. We've talked to a lot of people who have done that. And sometimes it works, sometimes they go and then they come back. And yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It was so hard. It was super hard. Uh, first three years were really difficult. In fact, my father came out and visited me and like six months after I was miserable and he, he's in New York, right? And he's like, what are you, nervous in California? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, dad, it's not as great as it looks on the surface. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, but once it got going, you know, once in California, once you get used to the whole car thing and the way the business works, there's such a volume of work here that once it starts working, it's great, you know, and the lifestyle yeah. is really nice. The weather is great and there's a lot of space and nice places to live. It's, it is somewhat less expensive than New York. Marginally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> somewhat. 
So when you were at Cartoon Network, you mentioned Johnny Bravo. Were you involved with Johnny Bravo as far as uh, um, casting and directing at all? No, not at all. I was in story development at the time. You know, it was something I, I longingly looked at, you know, the voiceover booth when I went by. You know, I had this golden <laughs> sheen, but um, it was, you know, it was the promised land on the hill that um, maybe I would attain someday. Well, I was going to say that's really interesting because you're a writer, you're a director, you're a producer, and you're a filmmaker. Yeah. Right? So you kind of have your claws into every aspect of it. What do you enjoy the most and why? I totally enjoy the actor part the most, really, because, you know, I was an actor. Sure. And, you know, you get in the zone. I will say that um, in recent years, I've been directing a lot more performance capture, which I really, really enjoy. It's... You're moving around, you know, you're in a room, you're doing scenes, it's more physical. You know, just kind of get in that groove, you know, you get hooked up and and insight is ideas are coming and they're flowing and you just, it's like the tap is turned on, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the actors can feel that and they're in the groove too and it's, it feels magical. Everything's easy. The word flow comes out a lot because that's what it is. It's the same thing as in music especially in jazz-type settings, but, you know, it doesn't have to be jazz. Everybody just seems to know what the other person is doing, and nobody has to direct, nobody has to do anything. Same thing with VO. And a lot of that, I think, is a function of just casting well. Absolutely. And having actors that you work with well, and they work well with you, and it just kind of just rolls. Well, and and that's that's such an important part, right? When you're starting your voice career, you're always worried going, oh, my God, am I doing this right? Am I any good? Are they going to dismiss me and then hire someone else? And, and all those fears go through your head, right? But after you start to do it and, and you're experienced enough, you know right off the bat whether the session's working or not as a voice actor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it's if it's working, there is that amazing flow. Yeah. And there's the give and take between the director and the talent. And it just everything feels good. And, you know, when you hit it, and you know, when you need to go, you know what? Can I try that one one more time? Because I just I got this thing I want to do. And then likewise, you also, after enough experience, know when this is not working at all. <laughs> we well, got to yeah. figure something else out quick. So what what do you do when when you have that feeling like it's not working? Personally as a voice actor, I always look for direction very specific going what about that did you like? And then what about that would you like to see something different? And I let them talk and try and get as much feedback as I can. Right. And then I go, okay. so when you say you want to see something different, what specifically do you have something? Do you have a picture in your head? We've talked about before how voice actors especially tend to use stereotypes as a starting ground. And I think that's really important. A lot of people go, oh, that's really bad. I don't personally, as a voice actor, I like to draw on a stereotype or an actor in a role or something Mm -hmm. To Mm -hmm. give me a base and a foundation. Now, from there, I get to develop it out. I get to make it my own. But I think those things are important because it's the commonality that we all understand that allows us to lay that as a base foundation for building on a character and developing that character. That character becomes much more rich, much more full as you bring what you have to offer to it. Of course. But I think if we can all start and that... Boy, if I had to cast this myself, 
you know, as far as like an on-screen role instead of a video game, who would I put into it, mm-hmm. right? And and I kind of think along those lines to try and get me going, especially when I'm not getting the feedback from the director and I'm not getting a clear vision and I feel like the session may not be going as well as it could or should. Right. And I think for me, it's it all depends on what the not going well is. I think for an actor, it's almost always somebody is not letting the actor do what they're doing or you're not getting it or whatever it may be. As a director, it depends on where it's coming from. Is the problem with the actor somewhere the communication between me and the actor? Or is it the other side of the translation is the problem between me and the client? And it's always very easy to say when you're in the director's chair that it's not you. But the bottom line is that it it depends on which side of the channel is broken. Well, effectively, then it's always you. Right. Because it's you and somebody Abs- else. Absolutely. Because, you, because that is your role as the director. That sure. is correct. The, the, the things where they tend to be the biggest problem is when the client wants to communicate way too directly with the actor and almost be attempting to do my role. The way I typically deal with that is I, is I try to nip that in the bud. But if I can't, I got to protect the actor. And so to do that, I kind of feel like even though this is what I'm getting paid to do, I have to step back because all we're going to do is make a fight. Um, and that's not going to help anybody. Oh, boy, we've had those times, haven't we, Randy? Yes, we have. <laughs> a big part of it for me is that and make sure I have a conversation before the session with the client, number one. Yep. And by the way, I agree with you that I always ask clients for a celebrity idea for the character if, if they can before casting, right? So right. I have some idea of what's in their head. You know, when I think about the times when it hasn't worked, it's either A, I've inherited this actor from a previous casting director. They've played the role. They're approved by the licensor in some way. Yeah. I'm thinking of a particular actor that I've worked with who's quite successful. Several, in fact, several who they've been doing the role a certain way. And then that day, the client wants to try something a little different, or I'm suggesting something a little bit different. I'm like, can they relax a little bit? And and the client says, yeah, sure, let's try that. And then the talent, they can't make a change. They don't want to. They're afraid to make a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I think I could tell my story now. <laughs> <laughs> this actor played like a kind of 60s dumb blonde airline stewardess. Like, oh my gosh, that kind of breathy uh, dumb blonde. (laughs) But (laughs) she like took it way to the the character she was playing to heart. And so we go to the next line and she reads the line like this. When you're finished, press the don button. And I was like, um, yeah, that's done, right? You know, D-O-N-E, right? See that word? That's, that's done, right? Like, you know, when you're finished, you're done. So I said, try it like that. She goes, oh, my goodness. Oh. I said, okay, great. Let's take it again. She goes, when you're finished, press the don button. <laughs> oh, my God. And I said, that, you know, at that point, I'm starting to tear my hair out. And I'm, I'm still being kind. And I'm like, just try it again. You know, but remember what we just talked about? We said done, right? Remember, we just said that a minute ago. It's done. D-O-N-E, the word is done. Like, I'm done. And she goes, oh, okay. Take it again. When you're finished, press the don't button. Oh, my goodness. I said don't, didn't I? And I was just, 
that that's an example of it's not working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would it's be. not working. And I don't know what was going on with her. I, I give her the benefit of the doubt. No disrespect meant to any actor at all, but I think that as an example to me when it's not working. Yeah. As a voice actor, you know. I mean, you know when it's not working, and you also know that every gig you have, no matter how great it is, and no matter how much that's your gig, you know that it's only temporal. Yeah. I mean, everybody makes changes. That's that's the nature of the business. Absolutely. So. Yes, it is. Oh. So my, my teacher, Judith Weston, this was another thing that was really, really valuable that she would always say. It was like, if you can't come up with any choices for the character, think of three things that character would absolutely not be. That's great advice. Isn't that great advice? That is wonderful because because we're always trying to look for the things they are. But if you can figure out the things they're not, then that starts to winnow it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. you can be in wild as crazy as you want to. And that opens up something like, okay, she would not be a serial killer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although that would make for an interesting Barbie. I'm just saying. That would be a hell of a Barbie game. <laughs> oh, my God. I did a strawberry shortcake game. And my God, the stuff that's out there for poor strawberry shortcake, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of porn stuff online. Oh, really? <laughs> for oh. strawberry shortcake. Oh, boy. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. You want to have some fun? Google strawberry shortcake. <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> now I'm doing the shooters and such, but it's great, too, that there's more. I'm super proud that I have two games that I've been working on that both at E3 were kind of controversial because they feature female player characters. One is the new Wolfenstein, the young blood. You play as the two sisters. And then the other one is Battlefield Five, which in the trailer in the first um, segment that they released, you play as a female protagonist. It's so great, the change in development that's happening. And I'm super proud to be involved in projects featuring strong women characters. Well, and that says so much about the shift in players, too. I mean, it's not all just teenage boys anymore. No, right? but, there, mm-hmm. but there was that huge... And outcry. I I say, yeah, outcry. That's a better word. That I was going to say backlash. But yeah, there's been a huge outcry on the Battlefield side. Yeah, absolutely. About having a female lead? Yep. Really? Yep. Well, because it's war. Well, it's... And it's just in one. I mean, it's the concept of the last two that I've done, they were untold war stories. They only released one, but even just having one, there could be, you know, multiples. There could be only one. I, I won't reveal that, but the outcry is just insane. But it's a small minority. And, and I have to say kudos to EA, the head of EA, Patrick Sutherland, for saying, "Yep, if you don't like it, don't buy it. Right. Absolutely. You know? So, good. Good. See, and, and I think that's a great approach to any kind of entertainment and creative, mm-hmm. right? You have your mm-hmm. choice. If it's not your thing, then it's not your thing. Don't view it. Don't watch it. Don't listen to it. Don't buy it. Right. Don't play it. Right. right? Yeah. But in the yeah. meantime, also don't flip it around and lock people out of the opportunity to have a different kind of experience or, or a more broad experience or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's get down to it. I had a project recently that I was up for and I was sure I was going to get and I was really excited about. And then I found out that a different director got it, which is cool. But there was a feeling they wanted a woman. They didn't say that, but they wanted a woman director. And I'm like, it's interesting as a male director, 
because I'm all for women directors, absolutely. But, sure. you know, there's also that competitive side of you. And I also see many people getting twisted around actors as well. If a person of color gets a job, you know, and they're a white person, there's this feeling of I lost something because someone is attempting to rebalance. Mm -hmm. But I think that we can be bigger than that. Sure, there's a part of you that feels like, why should I lose the job just because I'm a man? But then again, why not give somebody else a turn? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I like to come from that, you know, you can't do everything. No. And, you know, we definitely need a mix of people, for God's sakes, for sure. So there's also that other side of, and you never know the answer to this, but how many jobs did you get because you were white or because you were male over the years? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And you don't know the answer to that. You just don't. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. So last spring, I was interviewed for an article about when Hank Azaria went on, uh, what's Colbert. Yeah. And he addressed the whole controversy about Apu and being mm -hmm. a stereotypical Indian, right? And then there was right. that movie, What About Apu, right? Yeah. And it did that whole thing about stereotypes. And so yeah. I was interviewed because I had made a comment on a friend who is a big national TV critic. I made a comment on his LinkedIn wall and said, as a voice actor, again, you start with a stereotype as a foundation or a base, and then you move your character appropriately depending on how far and how in-depth your character really is, right? So right. just to say Hank Azaria has no business playing an Indian person because he's not Indian, I think that's a slippery slope because all of a sudden you're starting to run down that road and it says, well, if you're not that person, what do you end up with? I mean, Aziz Ansari doesn't sound Indian. He sounds very straight up American. So if you have to hire somebody of that specific ethnicity or or even gender, I mean, let's take a look at Nancy Cartwright, right? She plays Bart Simpson and she's done an amazing job. But are we going to get to the point where we have to hire 10-year-old boys to play 10-year-old boys? Right. Well, I think the other side of it too is that um, Hank Zaria, how long ago did he get that role? 28, 30 years ago, yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. Right. And that doesn't mean that, Tom, to your point, that doesn't mean that you don't reset. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do say, you know, maybe this isn't the way that we should continue doing things. And I think what was nice about what Hank had to say was he wasn't fighting for his job. He was like, if that's the move that they want to make, I think they absolutely should make it. It was just an interesting conversation because of the number of people that got up in arms saying, this character should never be there. And it's like, well, you know, maybe in 2018 it shouldn't be. Bear in mind, yeah. it started in you know, 1987 yeah. or 88 or whatever it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. But personally, I think if the day comes when it's all balanced and everybody is equal, yeah, then I don't care. But we're not at that day. No. First, I would never, ever cast a white person to play a, a person of color or an ethnicity just out of principle because I know actors who are of color there are very few and far between roles. There's starting to be more, but right. it's not nearly the the range, the depth, the... And of course, yes, you're always cast, even for women. Let me just say, even for white women, finding women who can do action stuff, who are really good actors, mm -hmm. is really hard because most of the women are being cast, especially from 18 to 25 based on their looks yeah are being cast as pretty yep pretty girls and that's where the jobs are and 
to put a lot of time and if you're not a stunt person time and effort into fighting and combat and all that kind of stuff it's not so many roles you can just see how the buyers kind of force that it's just like British actors, by the fact that theater is so alive in Britain, they have a lot more time and experience playing on stage, developing their voices, playing different kinds of characters. And so it creates, the industry by their demand creates a certain kind of actor, because actors go where the work is, mm -hmm. right? And the right. actors who get the work get more experience. And to your point, you know, and this is part of the education process, I consider myself to be a pretty open-minded guy, but I will say that in the past few years, I have cast people who are not African-American and African-American roles. I have cast people who are not Indian-American. And it's one thing if you're in this spot where you've got five actors who have to pick up 18 roles yeah, or whatever. And, and some of these things are going to be like three-line things, and that's not the kind I of I have stuff. done that too. Yeah, and that's not the I've kind of stuff I'm too. talking about. Yeah. But I will say that it is that the conversation has made me far more sensitive to that, where I'm now even almost going the other way and when people are like 30-something white dude, you know, I'll call some people up who are not that, who may be pushing the envelope a little bit, and it's an ethnicity difference. It's maybe the age is just a little bit out, but this person's a really good actor with a really interesting voice just to start to make other people think. And they can still go, no, 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 we're not going to have that person in there. But that conversation has made me shift in my own thinking, going, yeah, I probably wasn't being sensitive enough to that. Well, it, and it's an interesting conversation, right? But when, like when we talked to Dave Fenoy, right? I would cast Dave for any number of jobs because Dave is amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. But I'm, but I'm casting Dave or I'm thinking about Dave for a role based on Dave Fenoy and his talent. Mm-hmm. Right. It, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's not – I don't go, well, he's African-American, so he has to play the African-American guy. Right. No. Or – He's African-American, so he can't play the white guy because if he's good and he's convincing and that's the other side of this, right? We're talking about voice. Your voice is your instrument. It's your tool as an actor. And I understand being fair and being equitable, but it's also about finding the best talent for the role. You know, I mean, the best person is the best person, which is why. I couldn't imagine anyone else being Bart Simpson than Nancy Cartwright. Whoever plays the roles should be playing the roles based on merit. And maybe that's just my view, and I'm sure it is because I've now voiced it uh, <laughs> countless times. And, oh, yeah. boy. They're so, in trouble now. Hey, I want to shift it just a little bit. You are like the sought-after mocap guy. And if you're not the sought-after, you're certainly one of the top two or three. How did you gravitate from doing straight voice direction into not only just doing the mocap stuff, but in doing it in the way that you do, because you're pretty fierce about getting voice capture and doing it, right? You're not separating. You're not like, okay, there's the mocap actor, yeah. there's the voice actor. I hate when it's separated. It's horrible. How's that journey happen? Well, when I was at uh, Vivendi Games, we had this weird, weird thing. It was right when American Idol first came out. Okay. And they had a license for an American Idol game. <laughs> only they only had a license to make it a dance game <laughs> oh my a singing competition turned into a dance game nothing says american idol like dance yeah <laughs> i think it was probably before so you think you can dance but anyway so they said so you you sing the song and it's like one of those things where if you sing on the beat, somehow the, you know, the software is able oh, yeah. to. Right, right. Yeah. And so if you win the game, you win a move and you're making your avatar. And at the end of the thing, you're going to, you know, do a dance, perform song and dance. 
So they said, well, we need to hire a choreographer and we need to have kind of have hip hop movement for animation. Starts at a neutral point, then moves that are in a certain rhythm, then come back to the neutral point that can cut together a suite of moves that will fit together from a neutral point. And I was like, well, I have a background in dance as in choreography, as it turns out. So I was like, yeah, I can totally do this. And they were like, there's this thing called motion capture. So go down to this place called House of Moves and check it out. So I hired the choreographer and we had some rehearsals and we worked on the movement sequences. And we went down to the and House of Moves was just a big empty barn, just a big huge warehouse. And, and we did this very cool movement thing in space and I was like I want to do this wow after that my clients that are now machine games were working for Star Reason they had this game The Darkness and they were like we want to do we're going to call it vocap but we want to do motion capture and voice together and I was like I've done some so we did this game called The Darkness it was one of those kind of cult favorite games and it was one actor at a time in a big ADR booth and these big dots glued on. And um, we almost went nuts doing it because it was so much work <laughs> and having to think in all the different dimensions and having to learn. That was really where I really learned about what they call events in games, where there's a movement and then you have to come back to this neutral point, but you might wait or idle for the player to do something. You might address them, but you might not be able to look at them. There's all these things about performance capture in a game that are very specific to games. And that was a very beloved game, The Darkness. And so it kind of felt like I kind of helped invent performance capture, you know, and, and then... I started getting calls to do that since I had experience, you know, and hardly that many people didn't have it. So it just kind of snowballed. That's pretty awesome. That's very cool. That is very cool. Uh, luck. Lucky. Well, yeah, but we all have luck. Yeah. But it's right place, right time with the right skills. Yeah. And knowing how to take advantage yeah. of it. And I decided yeah. to, to run with it as well. There was a certain period of time. I did a film, did a documentary film, and um, I was doing theater, and I just decided I'm going to devote myself to this because it kind of brings together all the things I like to do, and I'm going to really run with it since I don't feel like it's a crowded field, and I hate competing. What advice or, or what direction would you give someone who is interested in doing a lot of video games now, especially since mocap or vocap is becoming very commonplace or much more commonplace than it ever has been? Well, the biggest thing I think on-camera actors take class and stage actors take class. It's like dancers. They take class from time to time. They go back to the well, to the beginner's mind. And that's, in fact, when I first started working with Judith Weston, that was like the thing, like I was an actor, I was and a dancer, I took class, but for a director, where do you take class? Like, where do you go where you can experiment, where you can grow and learn and get feedback? And I've seen some really fabulous, fabulous voice actors that I've worked with a lot, and I bring them in to audition for performance capture. And it, they're so used to being behind the mic that it's hard for them to make the switch and even to use they're on mic voice when they're in their body as well. So if somebody wants to do that, I just say take a good acting class and do scenes to stretch yourself. Mm -hmm. And what um, about the physicality of movement and stunts and things like that while you're doing video game work? Sadly, it's always useful if you know how to shoot. If you know weapons handling, Yeah, it's super useful. Mm -hmm. 
having said that, I've done very little shooting and I'm always doing shooters, but <laughs> often they get me a weapons expert. <laughs> I just did on Battlefield 5, we had this kick ass female weapons expert, kind of Swedish American chick, tough as nails. She was incredible. And she's like an Olympic shooter. I was so great, you know, to have her. You don't really need to do stunts, but you need to be able to move. You need to be able to even just the walk. Like like one of the first things at a performance capture audition that people have to do is they, it's late, they say their name and they have to walk back and forth as a character. That's something we did in acting school. Right. Yeah. But how often do you find the walk? In performance capture, because it's so visceral, and a game is so visceral, you're kinetically moving through space. That's the experience of a game, as mm -hmm. they exist now. Right. So, your walk is part of it. If you're walking kind of slumped over, I'm not going to buy your soldier. Right. Or a wizard, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be able to embody it, it right in the walk, right from the beginning. What is the percentage of ADR you have to do versus actual in mocap, vocap session that you that you keep? Yeah. Is it is it a lot? Is it not very much? Well, we try not to do any. Right. Um, I mean, we ninety percent of the on set audio is kept. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a pretty high percentage. I have worked with this one team, and they've been nominated for like eleven Oscars. Worked on one hundred and twenty feature films. And they know what they're doing in terms of monitoring the audio and having the best mics, live mics, and mix live mixing mm -hmm. the audio. You really have to have good audio people who are listening to every second. And we spend a lot of time on the set, like masking things, putting down cloth, mm -hmm. and, and moving equipment around so there's no sure. there's a lot of Velcro. And believe me, doing sex scenes, I've done a number of sex scenes in mocap. Man, the Velcro problem. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> crackle, 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 crackle. Oh, you're trading dots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then we usually do um, a separate shot without the head cam for, like, the kiss. So you have to do the kiss side by side. You have to do the lips and the sound. You do the kiss side by side for the face, and then we do another take without the head cam with the actual kiss for the body. Mm-hmm. You're faking it for the face, but because when you're kissing, you're not going to really be seeing the full face. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's super fun, though. I mean, it's what I was going to say earlier on about directing. This kind of comes back that, and I learned this from Judith Weston as well. Is one of the biggest things you need to do as the director is set the tone for the actor. Hundred percent agree. Set the tone for the session. Yep. And set the tone for what's happening. And I had this experience. In one of her classes, she used to run these classes. They were called actor-director labs. And you could both act and direct. And she also had a pool of actors that worked. And directors brought in their own material, anything they wanted to do. It could be an old movie. It could be fresh stuff they were working on, a script they'd written. And I was like, well, I loved also being an actor when I was directing scenes as well, but also being an actor in other people's scenes. So there was this guy hanging around the back of the class, and I didn't know if he was in the class. He seemed really super shy, and he had a little bit of an accent. I didn't know where he was from. His name was Juan. He wasn't working, but then one week, he said, okay, Juan's going to do a scene, and Tom and this actress, you're going to be assigned to the scene. And Judith would assign, and this was so great as a director, irregardless of the gender, irregardless of the type, she would just assign people, and whatever the scene was, you had to work with those people, and you had to make it work. Well, that's called acting. Yeah. yeah. How fabulous. <laughs> but for the director. 
right, also, right, right. So you yeah, had so to it's, make it's it work. Directing from that side, sure. So the scene was just dreadful scene. It was terrible. It was kind of a hallmark lifetime afternoon movie scene <laughs> about a teenage girl who had cut herself, had cut her wrists, was self-harming, was in the hospital, and she's being visited by an angel, a male angel. So the actress that was assigned was had to be over 40. and But I totally dug the idea of playing the angel. And I just went to town, and I had in my mind an image from um, Wings of Desire. Do you know the film, the, the Wings of Desire, where all the angels, Peter Falk was in it, it was really cool because all the angels wore these long black overcoats and there were these amazing scenes where they would stand like in the library and the filmmaker would pan over people doing things and the angels could hear their thoughts and there was all this incredible voiceover of their thoughts, their inner thoughts. So that was my model for the character. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I conceived him as Irish. So I was like, I'm going to do an Irish accent. So you got one rehearsal, the way the class went, and then you brought the scene into the class. And so we had this rehearsal. In the middle of the rehearsal, the actress has a meltdown. Oh, no. And she just loses it. She goes, what the hell? This is a terrible scene. And you're not giving me any direction. This guy, what's he doing with this Irish accent? And I was just shut down. Oh. I mean, I was already feeling vulnerable. Like, I hadn't acted much. And here I was trying this thing, and I felt shut down who the hell is she to give criticisms about another actor and the director just like fled like went to the bathroom oh no so we went to our corners we came back we all kind of agreed okay let's just rehearse it one more time and then we'll bring it in we bring it in i, I might start to cry because this is the this is so moving we bring it in and we show the scene and the first thing that would happen in these director laps was Judith would go up on stage and the director would sit next to her and the actors and she'd say to the actors, what was it like to work with Tom or Bob or whoever? And so she said, what was it like to work with Juan? And it was the silence. I was like, well, I'll start. So I just laid it out what happened. Judith looked at Juan and she said, why did you pick this scene? And Juan said, I escaped from Cuba on a boat. The boat was sinking and I was going to die. My brother had died already before me and he appeared to me as an angel. He appeared to me and said, you're going to make it. And we were just sitting there like, it was so moving. And she said, did you tell your actors that? And he said, no. She was like, why not? That's your job. And then we did the scene knowing that. And it was incredible. And I learned something so profoundly deep from that, that you have to open up as the director. You have to open up yourself if you expect the actor to open up. You set that tone. Mm -hmm. Wow. And it was amazing. A, that is an amazing story. And B, yes. that tells me, Tom and I were both out in London, both doing workshops. And the thing that I heard about Tom more than anything else was how you got people to tell their story and how you got people to open up about themselves and how that made this connection between me and Tom. But he did it with everybody. It wasn't just me. And that's a gift. That is just an incredible gift because... 
whether it's because of stories like that, it's just your life experiences in general. I mean, that to me, just listening as somebody else who pretends to do the same thing that you do, that's incredible because that shows that you've really understood who and what they are and you've taken the time to do it and, and they're not just actors. Yeah, yeah. You know, these are people and they well, have a story. Well, I think that's what makes Tom one of the most sought after directors <laughs> in the entire industry. <laughs> it, it, so It doesn't hurt. <laughs> wow. Nope, not at all. Tom, you've been really gracious with your time today and boy, do we appreciate it. We sure do. Well, it's been great uh, having a a good in-depth conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is that time. Randall? BT. Tom? BT. Until next time. Until. Thanks. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks for being on the show. All right. Thanks, Appreciate it. Take care. Tom Keegan is as authentic as he is talented and brings out the best in people because of it. Connect with him at TomKeegan.net. That's T-O-M-K-E-E-G-A-N. Dot net. N-E-T. Let's Talk VoiceOver is hosted by Randy Ryan, owner of Hamsterball Studios, voice, music, and sound design, and Brian Talbot, actor and all-around creative guy. If you have comments, questions, ideas for other show topics you'd be interested in hearing, or you just want to let us know what you think, you can reach us by sending an email to bt at letstalkvoiceover.com or go to our website at www.letstalkvoiceover.com. That's letstalkvoiceover.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher so you don't miss an episode. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. We just might post something. Dare us. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk VoiceOver. We'll talk again real soon.